Hi, church family, and welcome to, I think, our last Sunday night online corporate teaching time. Next Sunday night, May 1st, we'll be in the sanctuary. So we're into renewed in the spirit of your mind, knowing how the life of God gets inside. This is part 18, and we'll finish this series Sunday night, May 1st, in the, in the sanctuary. I want to talk to you tonight about the importance of defining worship before you make the decision to be a worshiper, knowing what worship is. We're still in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And it's always kind of fascinating to me that these instructions about the renewing of the mind, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, do not be conformed to this world, be transformed by the renewal of your mind that when he talks about the renewal of the mind, he really doesn't describe it as just a mental activity, which is what you would expect. The the fruit of a renewed mind is this uh, living sacrifice, this sacrificial devotion of our, our bodies and the material time, our resources, with all the ambitions and priorities and desires. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. So, Renewed minds have more to do than with just the mind. It's about, it's about service rendered to God. That's what renewed minds do. It's about work done. Renewed minds spend themselves. And then we noticed also, as we were looking at these verses, that there's the motive the motive behind renewed minds and the work done in sacrificial service. I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God, verse 1. So renewed minds, the fuel is is this understanding of all of God's mercies that have come through Christ and what that's all about, understanding all of that, treasuring all of that, thinking about all of that. And that that pondering of the mercies of God, it leads to love for God and devotion. So it's not just work, but it's worshipful work. That's the motive behind it. And that, so worship is the motive. It leads to what I want to talk about tonight. When somebody stands at the front of our church, or any church, and he or she says, Let's just lay everything else aside and let's just set ourselves to worship God. What are they asking me to do? Is it, is it they want me to sing? Okay. When does worship start in a church service and when does it end? I mean, the praise time doesn't go on forever. What about the worship? Is everything we do worship? I mean, I've heard people say that lots of times. 
Everything I do is worship, Pastor Don. I know I'm not in church all the time, but whether I'm in church or fishing or on the golf course or at work, my whole life is just a life of worship, which begs the question, if everything is worship, what's the difference between worship and non-worship? Is there a difference? If everything is worship, what's that person doing on the platform when they say, let's set ourselves to worship God? Obviously, there's a danger here. I mean, when, when words like, and there's a lot of them, but worship is one of those words. When, when a word is used frequently, without maybe some time given to attaching a specific and particular meaning to it, then you're left with nothing but a, a kind of an emotional shell and you can put any meaning you want into it. And sometimes you just prop it up with emotional excitement. I have two thoughts that come out of this text. Two important thoughts about, about worship. We'll look at two tonight, and then one really important one when we're all gathered together next Sunday night. So, so two thoughts here about worship. So point number one. Authentic worship... If, if these verses are true, authentic worship isn't possible until there's a deep understanding and treasuring of the biblical truth about the mercy of God. 12.1, the first part, I appeal to you, therefore. Here's, here's the reason I'm making my appeal. That's what Paul says. I'm asking you to do this for this reason. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God. I've said it over and over. Romans 1 through 11 are a description of the mercy of God. The appeal to worship starts in Romans 12, looking back at all of that. When you understand all of this, really understand it, that's the fuel for worship. So what that means is the emotions are truly involved in worship. They ought to be. But the emotions are the fruit of genuine worship. They're not the source of genuine worship. That's important. The understanding needs to be brought first, brought to all that God has done, his mind-boggling mercy in Christ. So, That call to worship in Romans 12 is based on people understanding together, here's what God has done in Christ. Here's what he has done in the cross. Here's what he has done in his resurrection. Here's what his sinless life means to your worship. Here's what the ascension means to your worship. Here's what his interceding at the right hand of the Father, here's what that relates to worship. His second coming, all that he will accomplish, that's related to worship. In fact, if you're not thinking about all those things, you're not worshiping even if you're jumping up and down for joy. Not real worship. When those truths about God's mercy, those doctrinal truths, those theological truths, when those truths are either forgotten or even just ignored, worship dies. 
even if people keep singing with their eyes closed and their hands raised, worship is gone. Where these truths are just assumed, worship dies. The crowd, the crowd can still be emotionally moved. You got a good band, you got good singers, you got good lighting. You can move a crowd. But worship dies. I've already dealt with this truth in this series, so I won't take more time here, but there's a calling to us in this truth. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God. If you feel the pull of the Holy Spirit to the full-blooded, deep worship of God, remember that he calls you to bring your mind, not just your feelings. The call to worship, any call to worship. When a worship leader stands here and says, church, let's just set ourselves to worship God, they're saying, think, church. That's what they're saying. The call to worship doesn't end with just the study of truth. I know that. But it can't begin without it. So what I'm saying is, the sermon has as much to do with worship as the songs and the band. Empty minds can't do worship even if they're emotionally moved. I said I had two thoughts I wanted to leave. Here's the, here's the second one, point number two. The call of the Spirit to worship is fundamentally a corporate call not an individual call. Now, don't get me wrong. You can sit in your car with, you know, your, your, your streaming music. You can sit in the car and you can sing and worship God. No, I would never deny that. What I'm saying is, in the New Testament, that by itself is incomplete worship. It's real, but it's incomplete, very incomplete. The call to worship is fundamentally a corporate call not an individual call. Here's what I know when I start on this second point. After about 47 years of pastoral ministry, the hardest thing for any pastor to do is to state truths that you know people really don't like hearing. And so that's what I'm doing. There is almost no pocket of the North American church that has a natural taste for what I'm about to say. I don't think what I'm saying right now is broadly accepted anymore, as it is in the rest of the world, except maybe parts of Europe. We don't accept what I'm about to say readily because we're busier and we're more materialistic and we have more at stake if we bow to what God's word says about Worship being corporate. We're heavily invested not to hear what God wants to say. Here's what's happening. Statistics just abound. Any survey you want to pick. They prove that something, something quite unique is happening in the North American church. There are more people than ever claiming some kind of born-again Christian experience 
while church attendance is in sharp decline across almost all denominations. So in other words, in other words, people see less and less connection between their personal relationship with Jesus. Words never used in the New Testament, by the way. They see no connection between their personal relationship with Jesus and their corporate attachment to a local church. Perhaps the best way to picture the way we think of the church would think of it as a big home depot for our personal lives. We get the cart on Sunday morning. We roll down the aisle and we measure how our needs are going to be met. We pick up something. This will help me build my personal life. This over here. This will help me fix my marriage. We put it in the cart. This will help me raise my kids. We put it in the cart. This will help me rid my life of stress, maybe worry. I'll put that. Then I take it out. I put it in the trunk of my car and off I go. I'll use it at my discretion because it's my personal relationship with Jesus. And that approach is so common that no one even seriously questions it anymore. Yet it's, it is acres away from what the New Testament says about the church. Paul never did, and he never would ask anybody just to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. In fact, you don't have to guess. We know what people were committing themselves to when they were converted in the New Testament. Let me read what happens to a convert if this is the book we're taking seriously. Acts 2, 41 to 47. So those who, here's salvation, those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Added, collected, brought together. And they, that's all those people together, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, and to breaking of bread, and the prayers. All of those things are things they had to do together. They didn't do them by themselves. 43. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together. Not enough just to believe. Believing, boom, you're together. And had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing, to the pro- distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Now notice, those who received his words. That's right in 41. Receiving the words didn't mean um, just agreeing with the words. Kind of like what they're saying over there. No, to receive Peter's words meant to be baptized. That's what receiving his words meant. Those who received his words were baptized. Which was the primary visible means of showing 
Receiving Peter's words meant switching crowds, switching allegiances. The changing of the fundamental community to which they belong. I used to belong to this group. Now I'm in this group. That's what baptism means. To receive Peter's words, the text says, meant they joined this fellowship of teaching. Studying. You know what they were studying? Romans 12.1, the mercies of God. That's what they were studying. They'd be taught it. They'd study it again. Then they'd be taught some more. Then they'd study it again. Then they'd be taught some more. To receive Peter's words meant they entered into this committed, continuous circle of learning and accountability. To enter, receive Peter's words, his teaching meant they entered into a fellowship of united prayer. Not just by themselves, united prayer. So I want you to notice that all of those practices, the fundamental point I'm making here is if you're going to go to this book to see what happened when someone was converted, the first thing you'll understand is all of those practices were communal, not individual. Not a single one of them was private and personal. No one got saved, ran home, and had a personal quiet time or gave up smoking. They were attached organically right away to this new network, this new society, this accountable fellowship. And it manifested itself in new commitments that were not optional. You get this over and over in the New Testament. Here it is again in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. So the first, I said there were two important points. The first point was, was that... Worship had to be based on a new understanding. It's not just emotional. The mercies of God. You're not worshiping until your brain is there. Now, this point is, worship is also fundamentally corporate, not private. It has to be corporate if it's going to be New Testament. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. Here's Peter writing to the church. What's he say about them? These converted people. You are a chosen race, corporate a royal priesthood, corporate, a holy nation, corporate, a people, corporate, for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, corporate, but now you are God's people, corporate. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You've received mercy. So notice that. Receiving God's mercy is a communal experience, not an individual experience. Say all of those terms from Peter's words. Say them over again in your mind. Race, priesthood, nation, people. He uses that one twice. This is the fundamental new identity of anyone who came to Christ in the New Testament. The point I'm making is there is No such thing as a solitary Christian identity. Christ is formed in our lives by making us not a group of persons, but a single people. One people whose very existence and identity can only be found corporately. 
Most North American Christians don't get that. They don't get that. The Bible stresses this participation in community as just absolutely essential for spiritual growth. I want to look at another text. I know I've looked at a couple already. Here's one more. Get your Bible and look at this one. It's really important. 1 Corinthians 3. I'm going to look at verses 9 through 17. So eight verses I want to read. Paul writes to the church at Corinth, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. All of them together, one field. God's building, all of them together. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building on it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, each of the workers, each of the leaders. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if someone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day, the day when Jesus comes again, will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Those are tricky verses, and I'm not, that's not the part I'm laboring with now. Here are the words I want you to note, verse 16 and then 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Those are the verses I want to talk about, 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple, and God's spirit dwells in you? And, and the common way that those verses get read is a misreading of the verses. They're almost they're almost always quoted without the context of the surrounding chapter. And, and the conclusion people reach is that your, God's Spirit dwells in you. You're God's temple, and God's Spirit dwells in me. I'm God's temple. So the Holy Spirit dwells in you. You're God's temple. The Holy Spirit dwells in me. I'm God's temple. And the New Testament teaches that. Romans 8 and 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Okay, so the New Testament teaches the Holy Spirit is in each individual Christian. But listen, that's not what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. You, you can't spot it easily in English. But every time Paul says, you, you are God's temple, do you not know God's Spirit dwells in you? Whenever he uses that you in those two verses, in the Greek, the you is plural. It's not singular. It's not the same as Romans. So in other words, the you Paul is referring to in 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17, the you isn't the individual. It's the church. It's the corporate congregation in Corinth. And Paul says there's a special way the Holy Spirit dwells in the church. It's different from the way he dwells in each individual Christian. The Holy Spirit dwells in 
the body of Christ and the local congregation. The Holy Spirit dwells in a local congregation in a way that's deeper than the way he dwells in the individual Christian. So there's this communal necessity if you want the touch of the Spirit in a deep, full way. All of which is to say, it's, it's the beginning, it's the beginning of spiritual dementia to just think about my relationship with Jesus instead of my relationship with the local church. Because the Holy Spirit wants to do something in the local church that he cannot do in my life individually. He wants to teach me to forgive others in the local church in a way that he can't teach me to forgive all by myself. He wants to teach me to minister in the power of the Spirit to a local congregation in the way he can't teach me that with the Holy Spirit just working in me by myself. There's a deeper work so, so what I'm saying is, don't tell me you love Jesus, but you don't love his church. The New Testament just won't let us con ourselves that way. You need to be attached to a local body. So here's what we've studied tonight. I said there were three truths about worship, and we looked at two. First, you can't stir worship up just emotionally. If you're going to worship well when the worship leader stands here and says, let's worship God. If you're going to do that well, something has to come before it. You have to understand and think about and understand the mercies of God. It's mental before it's emotional. It's both, but it's mental first and emotional second. And the other truth we said is, Don't tell me you're committed to Jesus if you're not committed to a local church. It won't work, and the New Testament doesn't recognize that kind of Christianity anywhere. And the third one we're going to look at next Sunday night when, as our local congregation gathers here again Sunday night, I sure hope to see you there. We'll have study notes for everybody. So next Sunday, May 1st, World Impact in the morning. We've got missionaries here and some exciting projects. Next Sunday night is our first cross-training at Cedarview again, our Sunday night service. There'll be study notes for everybody. Number of people being baptized. Worship time together. We'll have coffee and tea and a great time together. And don't forget also, Wednesday, 7 o'clock, right in the main sanctuary. It's the other main service that we have. So there's three now, three services, corporate gatherings of the church starting next week. God bless the church. Love one another.